Welcome to Stories from the Midland, a collection of historic tales from Teller County and the surrounding areas. In today's story, we'll talk about the robbery of the Hotel Victor in October of 1894. This episode is written and is being presented for you by Tommy Allen. Early in the night of October 12, 1894, three men arrived at Williams and Welty's stable in Victor, Colorado. One man was about 160 pounds with a red face and a heavy mustache. One was average size with a darker complexion. And one was tall with a light complexion. They needed three horses. It was about one o'clock in the morning of October 13th when the gunmen arrived to the Hotel Victor's Faro Bank, where the card game of Faro is played. They swept into the room from the darkened street with revolvers drawn. Two of the gunmen demanded the four men in the room hold up their hands. The third gunman raided the Faro Bank roll. From it, he gathered up between $600 and $700, between $21 and $24,000 in 2022 money. With their prize in their possession, the gunmen took one last look around the room before backing out into the dark Victor streets. And though the men were masked at the time of the robbery, the Cripple Creek newspaper, The Morning Journal, reported that at least one of the men had been recognized. Outside, horses were waiting for the gunmen to make their getaway. Mysteriously, when others made their way outside to give chase, a lone saddled horse was standing abandoned in the street. It was one of the horses the three men acquired from Williams and Welty stable the night before. A rider jumped into its saddle to ride hard for Cripple Creek and the deputy sheriff there. That deputy sheriff was K.C. Sterling. Later that morning, a man came down Bull Hill leading Williams and Welty's other two horses. Two men had paid him to take charge of the horses and return them to their home. The two men matched the descriptions of the robbers. And by 4.30, Deputy Sheriff Sterling and a posse armed with Winchesters had headed out to Bull Hill to start the hunt for the thieves. James Cannon, a local miner, went to his union's offices to pay up on his seriously delinquent union dues the next day. A little later, he joined another miner named Thomas Short at the Gillette Races. These were two of Deputy Sterling's subjects, identified by James Lacey, the man running the faro tables at the time of the robbery. Deputy Sheriff Sterling received word that Cannon and Short would be at the races that day, and at about four o'clock that afternoon, accompanied by Deputies E.B. Iyer and Lou Hayes and Deputy Marshal Tinsley, Sterling entered the grounds and demanded their surrender. Despite threats made by friends of the detainees, the officers completed the arrests and transported the two men to the jail in Cripple Creek. At about eight o'clock, word reached Sterling that a party numbering upwards of a hundred men were making their way to Cripple Creek to demand the release of Cannon Short. Sterling was also informed that this was probably an armed party whose real purpose was to break Cannon and Short out of jail. Sterling, accompanied again by Iyer and Hayes, loaded the two prisoners into a horse-drawn conveyance and headed for Florissant to catch the train to Colorado Springs to house the detainees in the city's jail. 
but they found no train bound for the Springs was due that night. So Sterling and his party made their way to Divide. Once in Divide, Iyer and Hayes began the process of unhitching the horses when Cannon and Short got their hands on a couple of rifles and demanded keys to their shackles. With two rifles pointed at him, Sterling thought fast and stepped forward, wrapping an arm around the barrel of both guns. In Sterling's words, I advanced, put my arms around each gun, and called for the guards. One of the prisoners drew a revolver from my belt and hit me over the head with it. I saw they were getting the best of me, so I wrenched one arm from the prisoners and said, I'm shot, and managed to get out the door. Both of the prisoners ran out and while going away took a shot at me. They ran to the railroad tracks where there was a large pile of ties. I shot three times and told them to come with me. They said they would give up, so I went to them. Cannon was lying across the tracks and dying. Short was badly wounded. Cannon had been the victim of two bullets, one of which entered his chest just above the left nipple and deflecting downward through his heart, and the other entered his head near his mouth. Short had actually been shot in the leg. He later confirmed Sterling's account of the shootout, but there were newspapers of the day that came at the story with a different approach. On October 15th, an article printed in the Silverton Standard states, The men being minors and doubtless innocent, the Union took occasion to show some feelings in the matter, as they thought the charge had been trumped up out of spite. The newspaper doesn't describe where the spite would have come from, but it goes on to say, Sterling, hearing the action of the miners, feared that his prisoners might be rescued from the jail and started for the jail in Colorado Springs. And despite Strong's confirmation of Sterling's account of the gunfight, the Silverton Standard works to stoke unrest by stating, The miners swear if they can catch Sterling, they will lynch him. The action of Sterling may result in the Cripple Creek War breaking out again, as the men had in custody were well known and their attempt to escape was not believed. And another paper, the Rocky Mountain News Daily, accused Sterling of just standing there and watching Cannon die. This claim isn't made in any other accounting. The Altman Miners Union put on a big showing for Cannon's funeral on October 19th. It was attended by many union representatives, friends of the deceased, onlookers, and local politicians. A band played dirges while the national flag was flown at half-mast. Even David H. Waite, governor of Colorado, would eventually state, The killing of Cannon was murder pure and simple. But not everyone bought into the heroic version of Cannon. Fights were reported between miners who disagreed on Cannon's innocent or guilt. And regardless of his guilt in the robbery, he threatened a law enforcement official at gunpoint and shot at him. This sentiment is reflected in the Cripple Creek newspaper, The Morning Times, who printed an article stating, The city government turned out in force yesterday to honor James Cannon. It does not matter whether the deceased was or was not guilty of participating in the Victor holdup. 
the fact remains that Cannon attempted to murder an officer of the law. And for that alone, he stepped beyond the pale of the law, and he was not entitled to the demonstration made in his favor by presumably law-abiding citizens. There is such a thing as being honest, and there was but little honesty in the official party made yesterday. And in reference to Governor Waite's claim that the killing of Cannon was murder, the Buena Vista newspaper, The Colorado Democrat, printed an article stating, If there was any doubt as to our governor being a wonderful man, it is now set at rest. A man who can look at the facts in the face like that and then jump clear over them to a position which suits his purpose is a wonderful man. But that wonderful man, David H. Waite, who was present at neither the shooting nor at the inquest, declared at the political meeting that the killing of Cannon was murder pure and simple. What are facts and experience anyhow? They are monopolistic, plutocratic, and Shylock, Goldbug, conspiratastical. And as soon as the facts are sufficiently covered by adjectives, they do not exist. At least Governor Waite and the populists would like to think so. As to the fate of Thomas Short, C.B. Flynn, superintendent of the Nightingale Mine where Cannon and Short worked, bailed him out of jail and took him to a Colorado Springs hospital to receive treatment for his leg. The physicians stated that the wounds were in no way life-threatening and predicted a full recovery. Thank you for listening. This is Tommy Allen, and on behalf of Trevor Phipps, have a great day. And should you find yourself in the company of law enforcement officials, keep your hands away from guns. We look forward to having you join us next time for more Stories from the Midland. References used in this episode can be found on its webpage. Visit storiesfromthemidland.com slash podcast. 